because this is the passage that we'll be looking at this evening. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Thank you, Erica, for reading that passage. And and thank you, Penny, for praying. Um, You can hear more of Penny's story and her journey um, if you go along to that uh, women's event. And I'm hoping that Yvonne will keep and save some food for me for those Indian tandoori. Anyway, friends, my name's John. A warm welcome to all of you. Um, If you are visiting us this evening, if you're new here, there are welcome cards on the pews. And so if you're here for the first time, we would love to get to know you more. So this is our way to serve you. So fill in one of these and pass that to Peter, myself or Chris out back. Um, We've just come back from leave two weeks away. Two weeks ago, Sunday around this time, I think we were sitting in a spa, a hot spa, and that was nice. But we're glad to be here anyway. (laughs) Well, friends... um, Turn around, welcome each other, grab an outline. There's a lot in tonight, so grab one of those. It will help you in our passage tonight. And I'll call you back in a moment. Okay, well, let's, let us pray and we'll look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at these words, we will receive them as the very words of God. 
And as we look and consider what this passage means for us, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to be completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when anyone in their right mind decides to preach on a passage like the one tonight, he must either be naive or brave or maybe he's just a simple Bible-believing Christian. Now, I hope tonight you won't be thinking that I'm naive. I hope not. And nor do I hope that you would think that I'm brave, which I'm not. But tonight we will consider this passage together. We are evangelical Christians, which means we are Bible-believing Christians. We are committed to the Word of God as the very Word of God. The words of Scripture are the words of God. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God. And so it is sufficient and it is supreme in all things of doctrine and life. The Bible is the authority. The Word of God is the authority. It dictates, it tells us, it teaches us, it reveals to us what we are to believe and how we are to live. And that's why in our church we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible systematically. We just work our way through. That's our main staple here at our church. We don't skip difficult bits when it's difficult. We don't avoid things because we don't like it. And so this evening, if the Word of God is in fact the authority, the authority over us, our teaching, what we believe, how we live, then as evangelical Christians, we must always be willing to have our reasonings challenged and corrected by Scripture, which means I don't reason away what the Bible teaches because I don't like it. As evangelical Christians, we must always be willing for our traditions to be challenged and corrected by Scripture. We, we can't claim, and we shouldn't claim, we've always done it this way. And we must always be willing to have our experiences challenged and corrected by Scripture. I don't appeal to how I feel as the arbiter of truth. And so this evening, I suspect that as we look at this passage, some of you will find this passage strange. It's not very politically correct. Some of you will find this passage out of place. What place does a passage like this have to do in 21st century Australia? Some of you will find this passage beyond understanding. And some of you will perhaps even find this passage offensive. Where is the gender equality? Well, I would like to ask all of us to approach this passage with the proper attitude, the proper attitude we are to have towards the Word of God. That is, we don't stand over it. We don't try to domesticate it to what we like, but we sit under it. And so we plead, God, this is a difficult passage. It is hard to understand, it is hard to accept, but God, help us all to understand it, accept it and obey it. And so we'll look at this passage. Now, before we look at this passage and work our way through the verses, it is worth us understanding a bit of the historical context, the place of women in society and how Christianity served to change the place of women in society. You see, in the ancient world, but really not just the ancient world, in many parts of the world, even today, women are seen as second-class citizens and wrongly so. And so in the first century, that was the case. In marriage, 
women were the property of men. They were used and abused by men. In marriage, women were expected to remain virgins before they got married, but that principle did not apply to men. Men could go and sleep around. It didn't matter, but it applied to women. And so there was a inequality in society. A woman's, a woman's testimony did not carry any weight in a court of law. And because women were seen of less worth and importance, um, what happened, what was commonplace, was female infanticide. That is, the killing of baby girls. So once a child is born, if it's a girl, many will just kill them just because they are girls. And that was legally and morally accepted during that time, to kill healthy baby girls. But for boys, you are only allowed to kill them if they are deformed. But for girls, kill them if you like. That was acceptable during that culture. And so even in large families with many kids, more than one daughter was practically never read. And so if you did have a large family, you've got one daughter already and you give birth to another daughter, well, one was enough. You'll just kill off the second. That was acceptable. And even in Jewish culture, one of the morning prayers in the Jewish prayer book was this, or is this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me, this is a man praying, a Gentile, a slave and a woman. And so when you read this and when you understand the historical context and the view of women in society, it's terrible, isn't it? It is wrong. Women are not meant to be treated like second-class citizens. But you see, that's when things change with the rise of Christianity. It was Christianity that changed that around. It was the Christian subculture in the Christian subculture where women were given worth and value and importance and identity. And so in marriage, the body of the husband belongs to the wife just as much as the body of the wife belongs to the husband. We, we saw that earlier when we looked at 1 Corinthians 7. You see, in that world, in that time, in that culture, that was unheard of. The body of the husband does not belong to the wife, but that's what the Bible says. And the principle of chastity applied to men just as much as it did to women. So Christian men can't go around sleeping around, committing adultery, being unfaithful. It applied both to men and women alike. This is in the Christian subculture. And in society, where the testimony of women carried no weight. But what do we see in the Bible? It was the women who were the last to leave the cross and the first to, to arrive at the tomb. And their testimony is preserved for us in scripture. Abortions and infanticide, well that was forbidden by Christians and so you were not allowed to kill any baby, boy or girl, and especially girls, you're not allowed to kill them, you're meant to love them the same. And so in the church, what do we see? Well, Christian women during that time with the rise of Christianity, they enjoyed a substantially higher status in the church than pagan women did in society. And the Apostle Paul himself, he, had, he valued the work and ministry of many women. He, taught, he spoke of Phoebe the deacon and he spoke of Priscilla, his missionary partner. And more than that, both men and women together, equals before God, they are co-heirs of the kingdom of God, equal recipients of salvation. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. Now this verse does not do away with gender distinctions. 
But what this verse does do is it does away with any barrier in relation to salvation. All people, male, female, all people are united in Christ. All people stand the same before God. And so we need to understand a bit of that historical context and to see that it is the Christian teachings that change things around for women. It is the Christian teachings that show that women are to be valued. They are important. They have an important identity because they belong to God. And so that began with the Christian subculture. And so we need to understand this so that when we read off Paul and Apostle Paul and what he teaches about man and woman, we don't wrongly accuse him of being a misogynist. He wasn't. Okay, so now we look at this passage. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll work our way through. Now, given all that Paul has taught and said about the importance of women in marriage and also in church, it appears that this passage seems out of place. Was Paul having a bad day? Or could it just be that he's in fact teaching us something of the proper male-female relationship in the church gathering. And so in verse 2, let's have a look. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. And so these were the apostolic teachings. They have received it and Paul is encouraging to them, hold on to them. And so what was these teachings? What were they? Well, Paul begins here by reminding them the first principle and that is the principle of headship. There is an order within the Trinity. There is an order between God and humanity and there is also an order within humanity. And he makes it so clear. We'll spend a lot of time on this. Verse 3, have a look. This is the principle. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So what does Paul mean by this? What does Paul mean by being the head? Now we're going to think deep here. We're going to spend some time thinking theologically. So you ready? Well, what does being the head of something mean? Well, firstly, it can mean to be the literal head, a physical head on a body. Or it can mean to, the, to be the head of something, to have headship over something to have authority over, just as the father is the head of the family, that type of authority. And so, if we are to understand it that way, this verse would mean Christ has authority over man, man has authority over woman. Now, it's worth noting here that the word man and woman can be translated as husband and wife, so at least it does mean that. And God the Father has authority over Christ the Son. That is the principle of headship. Now, with the rise of feminism and the changes in social society, many have actually disliked this idea of, of understanding head to mean authority, head to mean headship. And so some scholars have come up with this idea, have suggested that the word head means source, like the source of a river, not authority, but source. But you see, there's a problem with this way of understanding. Firstly, it doesn't actually make sense of this context nor does it make sense of the utter usage of head in the Bible. And so here, if we, if we try to make sense of this being source, what we'll see is this, that maybe there is some sense that Christ is the source of man. 
And perhaps man is the source of the woman, in that the woman came from man. Eve came from Adam. But in what sense can God the Father be the source of Christ the Son? You see, that is to suggest that Christ had some beginning and that is to enter into heresy territory. You see, in the 3rd and 4th century, one of the big massive heresies that were, was fought over was Arianism. Now, now that finds its uh, modern form in Jehovah Witness and what they believe, they believe that Christ had a beginning. God was the source, God the Father was the source of Christ the Son. They were, Jesus was an eternally the Son of God. And so that is wrong if you think about, if you take source as the meaningful head. And likewise, when we look at other usage of head in the Bible in Ephesians 5, we see this, the same word head is used. Wives, submit to your husbands as, the, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, it doesn't actually make sense to say that the husband is the source of the wife as if the wife derives her existence from her husband. That doesn't make sense. You see, I'm trying to show you that source does not make sense of the word head. And likewise, again, in another passage in Colossians 2, we read this, Christ is said to be head over every power and authority. And so it's the same word of headship there, head. It means to have authority over. And so what is meant in Ephesians 5, Colossians 2, and also 1 Corinthians 11 is that head means authority to have headship, to have authority and exercise authority over. Secondly, there's a professor by the name of Wayne Grudem. When this debate of head meaning source came up, he did a lot of research and extensive study on the usage of the word head outside of the Bible. And he went through over 2,300 examples of the word in ancient Greek literature. And there was no convincing example where the word head means source. But even if the word head was granted the meaning of source, it nonetheless implies a sense of authority over anyway. You see, this is what society has done to try to move away from what the Bible actually teaches. And so it's important for us to understand this and it's important for us to see that this is the way we approach the Bible, to try to understand it in its context, to see how the Bible uses the word. We don't try to fudge what the scripture says and we don't try to explain it away if we don't like it. So we got that so far. Headship, head means headship, authority. So if head means headship to exercise authority over, what is the nature of this authority? What does this authority in the biblical sense mean? Well, let me explain this by explaining what it is not, what it doesn't mean. Firstly, authority does not necessarily mean authoritarianism. We live in a world, in a society where we are quite anti-authoritarian and rightly so. We have a dislike for, uh, for those who use and abuse their power and authority to oppress those under them, those who are subordinate to them. We don't dislike dictators who are oppressive, governments who are oppressive and rightly so. But you see, the type of authority the Bible endorses and encourages is different to that. The type of authority the Bible endorses and encourages is associated with responsibility. And that is a responsibility to serve, a responsibility to be a servant like Jesus, the servant king. And so when Jesus taught about being in in authority, 
this was what he said. He said in Matthew, Mark chapter 10, verse 42, he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That is the type of authority that Jesus encourages, that Jesus teaches, one that serves. You see, biblical authority is a good thing. In our culture, in our day and age, we we dislike the word authority, but biblical authority is a good thing. It is one of responsibility and of service. But of course it must be recognised, we can't deny this, that throughout the ages and in many cultures today, men have been terrible. Men have been terrible in pushing an insensitive, patronising chauvinism. That is not biblical authority. That is not exercising biblical servanthood authority. You see, authority in the Bible's way is a good thing. It's not chauvinism. Authority is not authoritarianism. So that's what it's not. Secondly, authority also does not mean superiority. Just as submission to authority does not mean inferiority. And so in Ephesians 5, which teaches and speaks of husbands having authority over their wives, it does not mean that he's in in any way superior, that he is worth more than his wife. And so likewise, when wives are called to submit to their husbands, it doesn't mean that she's inferior or worth less than the husband. You see, there's a distinction here that we need to understand when the Bible speaks of those in authority. This is a distinction which our society muddles up. You see, the way the world sees it is that the worth of a person is tied to what the person does. The higher up you are on the corporate ladder, the more money you make, uh, the more authority you exercise, the more worth and importance you have as a person. That is how our society sees your worth. It is bound up with what you do. You are somehow, this is a technical word now I'm going to uh, share with you, you are somehow ontologically superior. That is, your very nature, your essence, your, your very being is superior to those who are subordinate to you. You see, this is how our culture and society thinks. If you do more important things, if you make more money, if you have more authority, you are worth more, but that is wrong. You are not ontologically superior. There's a distinction. There's a distinction between ontological subordination and functional subordination. This is a very important distinction for us to understand so that we can make sense of this. And so what, what I'm saying here is that headship and authority and submission and subordination is a functional difference. It's not a difference of ontology. That is, it's not a difference of your very being. It's a difference in your function. And so that's why Paul can say, the head of Christ is God. Just, just think about that. The head of Christ is God. This is talking about the Trinitarian relationship. God is always the Father of Christ the Son. It is the Father who sends the Son and is always the Son who submits to and obeys the Father. I mean, submission, headship, authority, subordination, that is bound up in the Trinity itself. You see, this is never mixed around. The Father is never uh, expressed in terms of obeying the Son. It's always the Son who obeys the Father. The Son is always subordinate to the Father. 
but it doesn't mean that he's inferior, you see. This is the difference between ontological subordination and functional subordination. The son is not inferior to the father. He's never less divine. He's never less glorious. He's never less powerful. And he's never less deserving of our praise and love and worship. They're equal, father and son. Equal but different in function. And so within the Trinitarian relationship, this is deep theological stuff, within ultimate reality, within the Godhead, there is headship, there is authority and there is submission and there is subordination playing out in perfect harmony. You see, there is an order of relationship that is good and it reflects what God is like. And so when now Paul teaches that the head of the woman is man, there is an ordering of relationship there as well. And that ordering of relationship is reflective of what God is like within himself. And so in the church context, the woman is functionally subordinate to the man. She's not ontologically subordinate. She's not worthless. Her function is subordinate, but her person is not less valuable. She's just as important as the man. She's equal in worth before God, in salvation, but she's different. I want you to hear that tonight. She's equal but different. And so that's the principle of headship. Now we spend a bit of time on that because that will help flesh out the rest of this passage. So what's the issue here with the Corinthians? What's this idea and what's this issue with the head coverings? Well, remember how Christian women enjoyed substantially higher status in the church than pagan women did in society. And so what happened was that the women then thought, well, we can do away with any gender distinction. And so I can come to church dressed in a sense like a man, which was in that time to not wear your head coverings. And that was culturally expected of women. Now, now there are different views on what this word head covering means. Some take it to be a vow, some take it to be a shawl, some take it to be just the way the, the women wore their hair up in a bun and not let loose. But whatever it was, that was a cultural context. But by not wearing the head covering, whatever it was, it was a sign of their rejection of authority. It was a sign of their refusal to submit in the church and it violated God's ordained distinction between the man and the woman. And so the men too were not to wear head coverings for that would be to shamefully depict themselves as a woman. And so we see now verses 4 to 6. Let's have a look. Verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, which was to look like a man, and that was disgraceful, she should cover her head. And so what we're seeing here is an application in that cultural context of the principle the principle of headship we looked at before. Here was the application of that principle. They were equal. Men and women are equal in church, in worth before God. But yet there remained a distinction that must be upheld. 
And so in that culture, the distinction was made by head coverings, how they dressed. Now, just in case we think that this principle of, of headship doesn't apply anymore to us today, that this passage doesn't apply anymore to us, Paul now gives two reasons to show how the principles still apply, though they might look different in practice. He gives us two reasons now. The first reason he gives in this passage is one from creation. Now, whenever the Apostle Paul appeals to creation as the grounds for the principle, it means that it is part of God's design for humanity. It has been embedded into the moral makeup of creation. It means that it applies universally. The principle applies universally and for all times. Though the practice of that principle might be culturally bound and will look different. But the principle is not culturally bound. And so Paul here uses and shows the grounds for the principle is in creation. Man was created first and then woman from that man and for that man And that's the reason. And we see this in verses 7 to 10. Let's have a look. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You see, that was the order of creation. He's appealing to a time before the fall. Then he goes on, in case this passage is not difficult enough, he goes on to say, for this reason and because of the angels, the woman out, uh, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now, what is meant by this angel uh, business, just to confuse us? Well, scholars different, but he's probably just saying that the angels are somehow guardians of the creation order, created order, and so their desire is to see that order of creation maintained. And now just in case anyone would again think that women are in any way inferior to men, in Christian thought, Paul now says in verses 11 to 12, he says, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, or, and also man is born of woman. You see, Paul is trying to make the point clear. Men and women, equal. You are equal before God but you are different. There is the principle of headship and that is grounded in creation and so it still applies. The principle still applies. Paul now gives his second reason and this second reason is from nature. This is what you naturally see. Men and women naturally are different. It's only in more recent times really where we've tried to blur the lines between the gender distinction. But nature shows us guys look a particular way, girls look a particular way. There are hairstyles that guys have, like the comb over. (laughs) Imagine a woman having a comb over. And there are things that women wear, like earrings, though that's probably not the case anymore. A brooch, whatever that is. A dress, (laughs) high heels. Imagine if I dress like that and preach to you. And so Paul now says in our final verses, he says in verses 13 to 16, Judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That's a cultural application of the principle for that time. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a 
disgrace to him. I mean, that might be a cultural thing as well. We have men with longer hair today. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And so those who wish to not wear head coverings, they are being contentious. They are not on the side of Paul the Apostle, nor the other churches. And so in summary, the principle of headship, it is in fact patterned of the Trinitarian relationship. This is not something that Paul plucked out plucked out from, from the sky. You see, it's pattern of what God is like within himself. There is headship and authority, submission and subordination within the Trinity. It is grounded in creation. Those are the grounds and it is also observed in nature. And so now, let's think about us today. What does it mean for us today? I mean, the principle still applies. The practice might look differently, and I'm sure it does look differently. I don't see any head coverings here tonight, and that is okay. But what does it look like for us today? Well, by way of application, I want to say four things. Firstly, and that is a reminder that order is a good thing. The created order is a good thing. Headship and authority, as Jesus taught, as Paul taught, is a good thing. Don't listen to what the world teaches about authority. Listen to what Jesus taught. Headship and authority is a good thing. There is an order of relationship in the family and also in the church family. And that is a good thing. In fact, it is mandated by God. And so just imagine, taking Jenna aside, just imagine if I, as the assistant minister of this church, would undermine our senior minister, Chris, I mean, what would that do to our church if I were to come to church each week and undermine Chris? How would that serve the unity of the church? Imagine if I were to come to church every week just five minutes before Chris gets here to take his car park spot. (laughs) I mean, I'm timing it. Not that I've ever thought about this. (laughs) But you see how taking genocide, I can undermine those in authority over me. And so in the church... It's not explicit in this passage, though it is implied. What God has given for the church, what God has established for the church, is this, in a sense, office of elders, which Paul expands on in another passage. Those who have authority and responsibility over the church. And so their responsibility is to oversee the church, to shepherd the church, to pastor the church and to teach the word of God to the church, for the good of the church. And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, a man who can't even manage his own household well, well, he's in fact disqualified to lead as an elder in the household of God. You see, there is an ordering of relationship in the church family life. And so in the first century, women showed their rebellion against this authority, their rejection of this authority, this headship, of men in the church and they did that by not wearing head coverings, whatever they were. I mean, that was an application of the principle in that time. How does it look today? Well, today I suspect that the rejection of authority, the rejection of headship in our church happens in a different way, not necessarily by what we wear. You see, that was a culturally bound thing. 
I mean, if if girls wear pants and jeans, that's not that's not wrong at all. I mean, that 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 has changed with society. But it wasn't long ago when it was expected that women were to wear skirts and dresses to church. But culture has shifted, and that is okay. But we need need to think hard about the principle still applies. How might it look in practice? Well, how can women show rejection of headship and authority of our elders in our church? Well, I suspect how it happens today in the churches is not so much by what is worn, so we're not thinking about head coverings, but more so by the attitude. Men, they're fools, aren't they, men? What do they know about running things and organised things and running church? I mean, whatever men touches, it is, he'll stuff up. And I'm not going to submit to our elders. What do they know? These men know nothing. I mean, it's the attitude of rejection of submission that we see rather than what we wear. Do you get that? So rather than showing your rejection by what you wear, we see the rejection of authority by our attitude. And so now in in saying all this, I don't want you hearing me say that this, this is about the competencies of women. I'm not saying that women are incompetent or anything like that. Women are super competent in so many things, they're more competent than men. It's not talking about competency, but it's talking about the order of relationship in the church which should be maintained. And so what, what this first point of application is that order is good. Order of relationship, particularly in the church, elders over the rest of the church, is a good thing for the good of the church. Second point I want to make is, what this means is that as a church we must always encourage men to step up, to take responsibility, to lead, to serve selflessly. And so for young men we, we must be taking initiative in service, in responsibility, in the life of the church. And those are in fact the training grounds for the future when we do have a family, when we do become a husband and a father. And then when you do become a husband and father that family life then becomes training ground for how you serve the church, the family of God. But sadly, I must say this, all too often from what I've seen in my experiences, what I've noticed in many churches, is that the men of the church take the back seat. They shrink away from responsibilities. They run from responsibilities. They abdicate their responsibilities. And so the responsibilities fall on the shoulders of women they step up and they take the lead. I'm not sure if you've noticed that in, 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 in churches around. I mean, we thank God that in our church, I think the men are taking responsibility. They are leading. As elders, they are leading. But in many churches and churches that I've been a part of, it's the women driving the church, the women leading spiritually. And so that should, in fact, look badly on the men. It's a failure on the part of the men to offer spiritual leadership in the home and also in the church family. And so the point here is that men must step up in responsibility. But in saying that, I don't want you to hear a distorted view of headship. We don't want to distort headship into something that's chauvinistic or ungodly. What we want is women to be just as involved as men in the service of God and his people, though it might look different. Now remember the historical context. Women in in the public Greek gathering. They were not allowed to speak at all. That was the culture back then. But then in the church, the women here, Paul encourages them to pray and prophesy. 
they were allowed to speak in the church gathering. That is counter-cultural. Now, we'll talk about prophecy when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. And so what we're saying here is that we're keen as a church for women to be involved, to serve, to love God, to serve the church. And that's why as a church we are praying and wanting God to grant us a, a women's worker, someone who can do things and serve in ways that men can't. We want women in ministry and more women in ministry. So don't hear me to, uh, saying that if men are in authority, doesn't mean, it does not mean that women can't do anything. We want women and men involved, though it might look different. And so we must also remember here that there is an order of relationship that is right and good. And so Paul's encouragement does not mean that all gender distinctions in roles are abolished. The differences between men and women, rather than being despised or blurred out, they should be celebrated and honoured. And so there's no rivalry between men and women in responsibilities in the home and also in the church, but that there is a unity, that they complement each other in the same purpose. And so, as I end, a, a, a quick example. A personal example goes, it goes without saying that I'm extremely blessed to have Yvonne as my wife. But I hope she says the same too, but I hope she better. But I don't know if you realise that we're actually quite different. We're quite different people, different in personality, different in our responsibilities, both at, at home and also at church. But yet we are united in the same purpose, to love God, to raise our children and to serve this church. But you see, though we, we are different, we complement each other. Men and women are different. They are equal but different. We complement each other. She does things, she's responsible for things that I'm terrible at. I have no idea about uh, doing some of the stuff that she's responsible for. I mean, for one thing, she can multitask. I can't really do that. And Yvonne would say the same thing about me. She would say that there's no way I could do what you do or have the responsibilities that you have, nor would she want to. And even by how we dress, the distinction between men and women, by distinction between man and woman, I'm actually very clear that Yvonne can wear a dress. I would look hideous in a dress. And I'm very glad, I hope I'll be very glad, that if I lose my hair one day and I wear a comb over, that Yvonne would delight in that anyway. <laughs> but, but you hear me saying this tonight. We're not degrading women at all. We're... we're we're asking all of us to celebrate the differences. We're equal, but we're different. It is God's good design for humanity. God has made men and women with complementary roles. We are not meant to be rivals. And so we honour God and we glorify him when we accept these distinctions and celebrate the differences rather than falling into the modern trend and the modern trap towards Blending and blending and confusing this unisex society. The difference should be celebrated. And so in the end, in summary, we're equal but different. This is a pattern that is pattern of the Trinitarian relationship. It is grounded in creation and it is observed in nature. We are equal but different and we can thank God for that. So let's do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your amazing wisdom and in your great and grand design, 
you've made humanity, male and female. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made us to complement one another in responsibilities, in how we love you, how we serve. We thank you for your good design. And so we pray that as a church and as individual men and women, we would uphold and celebrate these differences, but yet be united in the task of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in a moment, if we have any, uh, we're going to take uh, your questions via SMS. So uh, there's the number up there. So if you'd like to send one and you haven't yet, uh, you feel free to do that. In the meantime, while we wait for a moment or two, I wonder if you'd like to turn to someone next to you and just suppose uh, if you had a question for many of the things uh, that John has shared with us from God's Word tonight, what might it be? Or you might like to think of neighbours and friends around you. What are the sort of questions they might have? if they joined us at church tonight and were sitting amongst us. So turn to the person next to you, we'll take a minute or two, uh, chat about these things. What questions do you have or do you suspect those around you uh, might have? And then if there are questions, we'll ask them to John and if not, uh, we'll continue on. I'll, I'll interrupt you there and in a moment you can continue those exact or other similar conversations over supper together. We do have a few questions. I'm going to get Ben probably just to put up uh, one or two and then I want to ask a question as well. And I've got the mic so I get to do that. So Ben, do you want to, um, do you want to put that first, first question up for us, mate? Okay, first question is this. Uh, given they have equal yet have different roles, uh, why can't women be elders or ministers? Depends what you mean by minister. Elder, I'll explain. Depends what you mean by minister. In a sense, what we uphold is that, the, that all of us are ministers because to minister means you serve and we want everyone to serve. We want everyone to be involved in the service of God. So everyone can be a minister, in a sense. But what you're, I suspect what this question is asking is the ordained minister or, or the minister who preaches uh, publicly to the church gathering. Well, that teaching comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and I think Timothy, uh, Paul to Timothy is quite explicit in giving, keeping this distinction clear that men having authority over women, husband over wife in the household and, and some men in a sense over the church gathering in the church family. 
And so in 1, Corinthians, I mean 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about, um, he says, I do not permit women to have authority or to teach uh, over men in the church gathering. And so what he's trying to say there is that the recognised public teaching to men is reserved for men. Now this is not to say that women can't preach and teach, though the context for that will be to women. But in mixed gatherings, it is reserved for men. To keep that distinction, there is a role, uh, uh, role and responsibilities that is distinct and is maintained. And, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul there appeals to creation as the grounds for that principle. And so that's why, in a sense, in our church, in the Presbyterian denomination, um, elders are meant to be teachers. Elders are meant to lead by teaching because what that shows is that their authority over the church lies with the word of God. And so that's why in our church and in the Presbyterian denomination in Victoria at least, uh, uh, elders can only be men. And it is a good thing. We're trying to say that order in relationship is good. It's not to deny women any opportunities to serve. We want women to serve in, in many and various ways. And, and I know even at this, um, this lunch thing, Anna will be preaching. She'll be sharing the gospel. There's opportunity for, there for women to teach and to preach. Does that answer that? Yeah. So you're saying uh, there are contexts in which we want both men and women teaching the gospel, but there are some contexts reserved for some particular men. You used the word some, which was interesting. That you said yeah. for some men, is that right? Yeah, for, for some men, because the qualification for elder is not, uh, it, it's not something that's open to anyone and everyone. So you can't just have some man off the street, we'll invite him to the pulpit to preach to the people of God. It's only some men and they need to meet some sort of requirements or characteristics of what uh, should be exemplified by Christian people and Christian men in particular. So they must be one who manages the household well so that they can be entrusted with managing the household of God. Yeah, so some men, not all men. Okay, thanks, John. Next question, Ben. Uh, can women lead ministries in church where uh, men are involved? So kids do it, ESL, music, you can have guys and uh, girls involved in those. Can women lead in those ministries? Yeah. Good question. So I think the way to clarify that is the authority reserved for men as elders is to be the recognised authoritative teacher of the Bible. So in, in one sense, Jenny will be leading the ESL ministry in our church. I'm a part of that team. I'll be listening to Jenny and what she tells me to do and I'll do it. She's not, in a sense, teaching me authoritatively from Scripture. That is, the, that is what Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 2. So, so we have uh, women as leaders of various ministries in our church, don't we? But it's the, what is reserved is the public declaration, public teaching, proclamation of the Word of God, the eldership. Um, last question is going to come... On the screen, that was going to be mine. Uh, but we'll do the screen one instead. What does the Holy, uh, where does the Holy Spirit fit into the relationship? Oh, that's helpful. So you talked about uh, uh, God is the head of Christ, etc. Where does the Holy Spirit fit into that? Does he, does he get left out? Yeah, good, good question. So this was also debated by the early church and in the 5th century there was a creed that came out that, that made this explicit. Well, in a sense, the Holy Spirit is one who is sent forth from both the Father and the Son. He is sent forth from the Father and the Son after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So in a sense, you can say that he's subordinate and so subordinate to both Father and Son 
And that's why the role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ, not point us to himself, but to point us to Christ. Hopefully that answers